This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 13, Episode 36. This is Writing Excuses, Confronting the Default. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary. I'm Amal. I'm Maurice. And we are Confronting the Default. What does this even mean? Mary, you titled this podcast. What do you mean by that? <laughs> so this is all the things that you think are normal, um, that, that you just don't even see in your real life, uh, the, the ways that you have been programmed to, to think things should be. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the examples that Amal used when we were uh, getting ready to start was that you might think that uh, you know seasons are normal. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you live in L.A., seasons are— Something you know, that happens to other people. Yes. You have the mudslide season and you have the California is on fire season. Mm. Um, I've had so much trouble with this recently just because my books uh, do very well world, world, worldwide. And I've, I always post, this fall, my <laughs> book is coming out. And <laughs> right. someone will say, your fall or my fall. And they live in Australia. <laughs> right. And I'm like, oh, right. I, oh. You, the word fall is a default term for me that means a certain thing. It's really crazy. And no one even calls it fall in the UK. It's mm-hmm. always autumn. Yeah. Yeah. But I had an experience of that where I used to, um, I still do, but it's on hiatus, edit this poetry journal called Goblin Fruit. And our art director, um, Oliver Hunter, for a while, was living in Australia. And, and we were very seasonally focused, very four seasonsy. Like literally the, the seasons got woven into the themes of the poetry. Uh, and we'd always be asking Ollie to, you know, illustrate it accordingly, which we didn't realize until literally three years into the project <laughs> that this meant that he was always drawing the autumn stuff in his spring and and so on. Uh, and, and at some point he pointed that out kind of bemusedly and we felt terrible and we just never thought about it. Hmm. Yeah, I'm really just struggling here. I'm just like, man, do I have sort of a default that I'm just blind to? And then I go, you know what? I for me, it's actually a matter of faith because, uh, and I didn't realize until recently, you know, I'll always write characters with a certain faith mm. and they're always questioning, you know, uh, their their faith perspective. But their faith perspective for a long time was always default Christianity. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, you know, I'm going to go on out on a limb and believe that people don't necessarily worship Christi- mm. in Christianity. Yeah, well, uh, and even <laughs> within that, there's multiple... And there's multiple, right. And so um, so I've been very conscious about, you know, the faith perspectives that I'm, uh, that I'm portraying and I'm examining in, in stories because, you know, there are obviously other, defa- uh, there are other uh, faith perspectives and I'm like, and it's great for me to start to explore those in, in my characters. I love that example because it is so useful, especially when talking in genre, um, because... I think that it's equally possible and happens a lot that um that that you know geeky nerds who come from science backgrounds will assume a default of atheism for everyone mm. um we, because it's because it's what it's their belief it's like well but how can you be rational and and believe in god and stuff like you know the, like we talked about in a conflict episode before uh but in doing that um they miss out on like, well, but wait, but but people are religious, you know, people people do in fact believe things. Uh, and how are you going to get at that and represent that and and do so specifically in a way that doesn't cater to your biases? Like, are you going to, if you're an atheist, put religious people in your books who are sympathetic and who aren't just deluded, right? Right. Like, nothing I, I've mentioned before, um, nothing bothers me more as 
a religious person, then reading a book and finding the one religious person uh-huh. is the idiot who needs to be taught right. The, the right way of things. Um, and one thing I really like about this concept, what, confronting the default, while we're bringing, why we're bringing it up is, number one, if you do this, you'll become a better writer. You'll become a more excited writer because you'll find pay, things to explore that you haven't thought about. Mm-hmm. Um, and plus, you can play in really fun ways with reader biases. Um, mm-hmm. The book is out now, and so I can I can talk about this. But Stormlight Archive, uh, my big epic fantasy series, a um, little bit of a spoiler, um, uh, humankind is not native to the planet that they're on. And so from the first book, I've been able to really play with this by, for instance, they reference the, the linguistics has shifted, and um, they call all birds chickens because mm-hmm. chickens is the word, that, the lone word that made it, made it through to their language. And seasons to them, um, they're on a planet with no axial tilt. And so a season is just when the weather gets cold for a while, they're like, it's winter now. Huh. And the readers are like, why? They use season so weird in this book. They said it's winter last week, and now it feels like summer. What does it even mean? What's on going on with the weather? When they start to put together that all these people who have come from another world brought all of their language for describing the world around them to a planet where a lot of this is different and have misapplied it, huh. you get really fun things that you can play with in, in the book. That yeah. is awesome. It reminds me of... Uh, uh, Ursula Vernon's Digger comic, where the main character is a wombat. Uh, it's amazing. Everyone should read this book. Uh, the main character is a wombat and, and like an anthropomorphized wombat. And it takes several pages before there are any pronouns applied to this wombat. But this wombat is also from an atheist engineering society. And something about the fact that they're being portrayed as an engineer and as someone who's working with a pickaxe and stuff absolutely cued me to assume that the wombat's male. But no, the wombat is in fact a woman, or a woman, a female wombat. Uh, And I was just like, what? Oh, I guess those bumps were supposed to be mammary on this this character. I totally didn't realize that. Um, So uh, I have an interesting experience playing with that whole reader expectation thing. So I I talked a while back about my novelette uh, that's coming out from Beneath the Skies, or out from Beneath the Skies, called Elle is a Spaceship Melody. And it's an Afrofuture story, and and I'd let a, a, a one of my pre-readers, you know, I gave it to one of my pre-readers, and and so he's giving me the feedback, and he's like, oh man, and I just love how you did the interplay between the the, the two different races on the starship, and I'm like, there's only one race huh. on the starship. He's like, no, I mean, no, the white characters are on your star, starship. I'm like, there are no white people in this entire <laughs> novelette, and he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like. And so I had to explain, you know, in, in this Afrofuture universe, you know, people are free to define themselves as themselves. They're not defined in terms of an other. Mm. It's like, no, this African Americans defined just by being African American. So what you've actually just witnessed is black people talking to each other. Mm. <laughs> and and it, it for real, it just blew his head. That, and it was interesting that he had defaulted because I don't name the race of, some, of, of any of the characters, really, because it's not like I sit around at a family dinner going, hey, by my blackness, uh, pass me the salt. You know, it's not <laughs> something we do. Uh, so, so it was just a non-consideration. So, That's yeah. such a beautiful yeah. turn of phrase, though. I love that. <laughs> by my blackness. By my blackness, <laughs> give me the salt. Right. It's amazing. Uh. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's go ahead and stop uh, for the book of the week. We're going to talk about the murders of Molly Southbourne. The Murders of Molly Southbourne. Um, so that is a, a, a novella from uh, Todd A. Thompson. It's from, from, Tor, from I believe it is Tor.com, uh, from, from their novella series. And this is an absolutely thrilling book that at first had me completely, I mean, just caught me completely off guard because I mean, it's about this woman, Molly, who, I mean, the opening scene is her encountering herself and she has to kill herself. Hmm. And I'm like, what is going on <laughs> right now in this book? And it's a really dark book. But it's, but it's also so thrilling. And so um, Tade has a way of just – and it's really this really tight POV. So I mean, you're just really immersed in this one character's head, which means you really have no clue what's going on. And the masterful way he manages to tell the story of this woman encountering versions of herself and having to confront and kill herself mm-hmm. uh, and why she has to do this. It's like this mystery unfolding that he, he is just – it's elegant. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> right. That sounds so great. <laughs> So we're we're talking about kind of biases, um, and some of these that you will have as a listener are narrative because mm-hmm. certain types of narrative have been told to you so many times. You have internalized them, um, and you will use them. You will just use them. It will happen. Um, I've got a good example from my books. I, I'm Mistborn, my, my second novel. Um, I love this book. It's a great book, but it has one, now that I've seen it, very glaring flaw, and this is that as a writer – I was trying to um, – I said, I'm going to write a really strong female protagonist. And that term is loaded in and of itself, but mm-hmm. I am going to write female protagonist, teenage girl. Um, and this is a story of her moving in this realm of, uh, of magic and things like this. And I feel like I did a pretty good job. Got a lot of early readers, used my sisters as a model, um, and, and really just kind of treated her like a character, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it works. A lot of people really like it, but – People have also pointed out she's the only girl in basically the whole book, Um, (laughs) right? And this is – well, this is just a thing we do. We default to male a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Uh, We default to male when uh, describing characters. And when coming up with a team of thieves, I just defaulted to a bunch of guys and then the kind of the Smurfette principle, right? The Mm -hmm. one girl. And fortunately, I was good enough not to define her only by her femininity. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I still fell into this kind of trap of – um, I defaulted all of my characters to male um, because that's the thieving team that I imagined in my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I find that I, I am often guilty of that with characters, that there is a, a default setting that I'll, I'll forget about. It, in an earlier episode, I, I offered a worksheet that I use where I, I have you know all of the different kind of axes that people exist on, like ability and age and, and uh, orientation and all of that. And and when I fill that out, uh, I will I look at it, and the the default that I kept coming back to is that I tended to have straight characters, hmm. um, and like and by tended to I mean that I would look at it and go oh look all of my characters are straight hmm. huh, interesting <laughs> hmm. uh, look at me not even noticing that I do that um, and the the reason that I'll fill this sheet out is because it it allows me to spot that right. Uh, but there's there's just so many things that even when you think you're thinking about it, mm. because it's programmed in so hard, right. like um, with the Glamorous Histories books, the first two I was like, well, you know, I'm writing Jane Austen with magic, mm. and and this is set in Regency England, and and it's in a small town, the first one, so of course there are no people of color there, and then I. 
then I'm next in Brussels. And of course, there are no people of color there. And then I actually researched and realized that I was completely mm. wrong in both cases. Uh, you know, Peter Bruegel is painting or etching uh, black peasants mm. in Brussels in, in you know, and and uh, so anyway, but point being that that in book three I addressed that and I put mm. it in London. I had this nice diverse cast, and then book four I finished the book and looked at it and was like, Mary, you have just done another book that is all white people all the time, and it's in Venice, <laughs> <laughs> which would not be. What have you done? Mm. And I had to go back in to to correct that. But it's much harder to correct something like that when you are examining your default setting at the Mm -hmm. end rather Mm. than attempting to examine it before you begin writing. It's a little bit like, you know, using the hand that using your non-dominant hand, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like, if you're really, really focusing on it, you will be able to do something with almost as much dexterity as your right hand, but you're just so used to using, I said said right hand right now, right? Yes, Mm -hmm. that is mine, right? But that's not the case. Someone's left-handed listening to this podcast going, hang on, but I'm, you know, Mm -hmm. that's my my dominant hand. It is something that... um, And this is is actually assuming that someone has a dominant hand. Has a hand for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a dominant hand has a hand. Like, these are all the things that are baked into us because... There, especially when it's your body, you're, you're using your body to navigate the world. Your body is thoroughly informing all of your thoughts and experiences. When, I mean, actually, when you're talking about all the straight characters in your books, um, one thing I love about your writing, and, and I basically cannot stop talking about this on the internet, is that I love the fact that you write straight women lusting after men. <laughs> because, like... <laughs> This is genuine. Like, I love it. I love it so much for so many reasons. But one of the reasons is that besides the fact that I don't see it often and don't see it done in a compelling way, um, I I see that there are so many. One of the reasons is um, there is this default expectation that women and men are just going to end up together um, and you don't actually need to show that desire or that lust. It's because it's expected. It's just what's going to happen within the parameters of a relationship. But the other reason is, like, I'm I'm bisexual. <laughs> and I just sort of expect that uh, I have the opposite sort of bias where I, I do just kind of write bisexual characters by default. It, it sort of doesn't make sense to me that people don't experience sexual desire for, like, for, for just that they have the capacity to experience it for everyone. I have to remind myself that that is a thing. Um, but I just, so when you write that, when you write women who, like, exclusively want men, I love it. I actually find that, like, just, it, it, it just, like, reveals a part of the world for me that I don't experience on a regular basis. Well, and one of the things that I think is important that came up here, that, that's come up again, is being aware of this, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, where did my biases come from? Why do I have them? Yeah. Uh, if we get go back to Mistborn again, I'm looking at my models, right? Ocean's Eleven, The Sting. Um, uh, sneakers. These are all-male casts. And it isn't that I sat down and said, I want to do a story with an all-male cast. I just did it. And there's a separate argument of, is it, you know, okay to just sometimes write an all-male cast or whatnot? That's not what we're getting into. We're getting into the things you're doing unconsciously on accident that if you examine them, you might say, wow, I didn't mean to do that. And it would be better it would be more interesting, make a better story, make me more interested in the story if I confronted it 
and looked at it and tried to do it a different way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's that is the thing. It, like as a writer, what you want is you want the things that you're putting down on the page to be there because you put them with intention. Mm-hmm. And what we're saying is look for the stuff that it's like, whoops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. We're just wow. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Um I'm thinking about this a lot lately with uh, there are just there are just so many assumptions that I think it's also good to to think about the fact that everyone has these yes that um and and that having these doesn't make you a bad person you know but but being aware of them can in fact make you a better person just because you have become that much more aware of others and therefore you have like a new channel open for empathy about things uh and that yeah I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast but one of the the very eye-opening moments for me happened way back before a lot of the kind of things that have happened in science fiction recently happened. It was one of the first ones. It was something they called race fail. Ah. I'm not going to dig into this right now. It's not the, the appropriate place. But I remember reading a really great essay, and I can't even remember who it was, who looked at this in a, with really um, open eyes. And, his, um, and they were a person of color. They're like, look, we need to change the discourse in our society from – you know, the word that was racist being like the worst thing that you can say to someone. Instead, we need to shift it toward being able to say that was racist and you saying, hey, yeah, that was a little racist. Mm-hmm. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. Um, my eyes are a little bit more open now. I realize something that I've, been, that I've internalized. And it's what, what we would love for you to do as listeners is be able to say, it's okay that I have had a bias pointed out to me. It is, I am better now. And not just we get so defensive. Mm-hmm. We get so defensive, mm-hmm. and that, that's why I, uh, my credo has always been: fail better the next time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you know, I'm not going to get everything right the first time. I'm not yeah. going to get everything right the second time. But I want to learn. I want to improve. I want those biases pointed out to me, so that I can fail better the next time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and do some homework. And um, Amal, you have some homework for us. Yes. So on the subject of biases and norms and defaults. Um, I want you all to think about a bird. Think about what what makes a bird a bird. I want you to write down a set of characteristics, say five characteristics, uh, that are uh, that that to you define what a bird is. I could. I'm not going to give you examples. You can do this on your own. But then once you have those five things, um, find real world examples of birds that in fact don't share those characteristics. And just kind of examine why is it that the bird you came up with is is the bird that you came up with as opposed to some other bird. All right. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. 
I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.